Our guest today, Caroline Casey, spent a good part of her life hiding her true self and the fact that she's legally blind. And when she finally opened up to the world, amazing things started to happen. We loved our conversation with her so much that we want to make sure that you hear all of it. And her story actually started as a child, like a lot of ours do, when she was so inspired by The Jungle Book. And ironically, years later, she finds herself on an elephant back in India, which is how she started fundraising for the inclusion revolution that she started in the workplace. Welcome to season three of Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm with our producer, Rebecca Charbovsky. Hi, Chris. Anyone who listens to Caroline is really going to instantly love her. Mm -hmm. She's so full of energy. Her perspective is especially important right now, given what we're seeing in some of the new global research. And some of that research was pretty surprising, don't you think? Yeah, but in a, in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, our researchers have been tracking attitudes about the workplace for a long time. And in our most recent study, they asked global leaders in 11 countries, what workplace issues are most important in the year ahead? Mm. And what they said was employee well-being, diversity, equity, inclusion, and sustainability were their top three. So those top three topics aren't new, no. but they've always lived further down on that list yeah. of the things and the choices that leaders have to make. Things that were important, but not necessarily urgent. And now it feels like that's changing. And, and that's what's really surprising. And it's exciting. So this conversation with Caroline and actually the whole season of Work Better is filled with guests who are working on those three big issues mm -hmm. and making a positive impact on people and the planet. So Rebecca, can you tell everybody uh, just a little bit more about how we got connected with Caroline? Absolutely. Caroline is an Irish activist and a management consultant. She leads The Valuable 500, and Steelcase is proud to be a part of it. The Valuable 500, if you haven't heard of it, you should look it up. It's a partnership of 500 of the most influential organizations in the world, and they've all made a commitment to work to end disability exclusion. But how she starts this this movement is amazing. This totally. woman, this woman is fearless. Like she literally rode on horseback <laughs> across Colombia to reach her first CEO, who was the head of Unilever, to get this whole movement started. I mean, most of us wouldn't think to do that at all, but especially for somebody who's legally blind. She'll do it all. Yeah. And and this is such a great episode. We really want to ask our audience to share it mm -hmm. with a colleague or a friend. Caroline joins us today from France. Thank you so much for joining us today, Caroline. Thanks a million for having me. It is a real pleasure. Well, we know that people are listening to us, obviously, because we're on a podcast. And even though you and I can see each other on video, in the spirit of inclusivity, I'm just going to tell the audience that I am a woman with fair colored skin and I have dark brown short wavy hair and I'm wearing my favorite red glasses because they make me happy. What about you? Well, I'm, I'm so happy you do audio description. So I am an Irish woman with very fair hair 
I'm just going to be 52. I have very white blonde hair, which kind of just beyond shoulder length. I'm wearing a very bright orange t-shirt. And I have my second favorite pair of glasses, which are big, thick rimmed black glasses. I also have kind of blue eyes that shake a lot. And I love your glasses, I have to say. So I love yours, actually. (laughs) Like red glasses. I used to have a pair of pink glasses in the sort of Barbie theme for a long time, but nothing to do with Barbie, but I loved them and I'm sorry. Oh, that's so frustrating. I love a color pair of glasses. Well, so Caroline, I really am excited to talk to you today because I've had a chance to, you know, read and learn a little bit about what you're doing. But for people who don't know kind of your backstory, could you just take a few minutes and tell people about you and kind of the journey that you've been on to get to where you are now? Well, you know, I think the older you get, there's more to fill in, (laughs) right, Chris? So I think I'll probably give you some highlights. And also I'm Irish and I probably talk too much. So you're going to have to tell me to stop. Well, I'm sure everybody will (laughs) be interested. But some of my backstory. um, Well, I mean, there's the things that I do and there's the person that I am. And the person that I am is very much like both of us comes from where we came from. So I was born in 1971 in Dublin, and I'm the eldest of three children, two parents who I think are slightly eccentric mm-hmm. for sure. Um, my father was like a six foot six. We used to call him the gentle giant. He had size 15 feet and big hands. Wow. And he was an entrepreneur, and they were both black sheep. So they 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 went around their life very differently. So I grew up in that environment, and I had these sort of dreams as a child. I think that were very much normal in my family, which was I was going to go be a cowgirl (laughs) and I was going to race cars and motorbikes. And I was going to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book Mm. because I'd seen the Jungle Book when I was six in a tiny little cinema in a county in Ireland. And I kind of went through life thinking I was pretty much the same as any other kids, except for my wild, strange ambitions. So, you know, when you finish school and everybody has these things you're going to do, like you're going to go to university or you're going to go and be an apprentice or what are you going to do? Right. And like, I was not going to university. I wanted to go traveling because of all the things I wanted. Right. And it was just happened on my 17th birthday. I was in an eye specialist where I have been in an eye specialist or an eye consultant all my life because I had been accompanying my sister and she had a rare, rare eye condition. And, um... Yeah, it was on that uh, in this eye consultant's office on my 17th birthday. I found out that I had the exact same condition as my sister, wow. which is ocular albinism. And you didn't know it? No, I grew up not knowing because my parents, in their eccentric way, had made a decision when they were deciding what school to send me to. They decided to send me to a mainstream school because I have about a foot and a half vision and they wanted me not to be labeled or limited by other people's perceptions of my sight, Mm -hmm. that my vision would not be compromised because of other people's view of what sight is. Mm. And so they brought me up as a sighted child. And I had no idea that I, yeah. I mean, because I wear glasses, of course, like you just talked about glasses, but they don't fix my sight. Like I have 660 vision. So I found out on that 17th birthday and also because my father had given me a driving lesson. (laughs) It's just, just quite crazy. So um, I got I'd that. love to know how that went. but Well, it, it didn't go. Um, <laughs> it really didn't go. But anyway, so when I discovered that this was a thing, you know, mm-hmm. I had no connection to it. And so I, 
I was too young and too immature and too ill-informed to understand what I was about to do. And what I did was I had decided I got to 17 without knowing that I had a condition that was going to change the way people viewed me. So I decided to hide it. It was my choice. Mm -hmm. And I went into what I call the disability closet, mm -hmm. where I remained very successfully. Mm -hmm. One of my most successful attributes for 11 years. And I did that through a variety of careers, being an archaeologist, being a masseuse, traveling around the world, all the things, a landscape gardener, and eventually ended up with Accenture, a management consulting firm, mm -hmm. as a change management consultant. And I didn't tell them. Wow. And I got away with it very, very successfully for two and a half years. And just at the turn of the century, mm -hmm. which is a great way to say, just as we went into the year 2000, I tumbled out of the disability closet. Mm. And uh, for the first time in my life, what made you tumble out of the closet? What made you? Oh, the tumbling out of the closet is, I'm often well known to say, I mean, I love Maya Angelou for many reasons, but her, her quote, there's no greater agony than an untold story inside you. Mm. I think that's what it was. I mean, we could talk about lots of other kind of academic reasons why it was mm -hmm. hard. There were lots of reasons, but what was really hard was trying to be somebody that I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Hiding what I might need so I could belong, you know, mm -hmm. because I think we all want to belong and a complete misconception of what living with a sight impairment was. And actually, I really didn't like myself anymore. I'm high energy. I'm generally known as a very positive person. I, I, I have my heart in my sleeve. It's big. But I had been brought up really not to ever ask for help, you know. It was always like we're truckers in the cases, you know, we, we truck on. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to unravel the lie that I had got into. I just was starting to just to didn't know myself. And I think that's the, there's sometimes it happens in your life that you you can do nothing but do what you do. And that's when I did come out of the closet. I went to see the head of HR and and I I mean it's a joke, but it's true. And I said, um, listen, I I can't see you right now. And she said, don't worry, we'll, we'll reschedule the appointment. And I was like, no, 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 I, I really, really can't. can't see you. Yeah, I mean, and that's what's begun a lifetime of nearly daily disclosure of my vision. Because if you were to see me, there is nothing to tell you or indicate to you other than my eyes that shake that I can't see you. Because I have learned absolutely, I'm a ninja. I'm a ninja out of managing to look like I can see perfectly because that's, I had no other way. It's how I had to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's now, oh my gosh, that's 23 years ago. Uh, and there's so much that came after it, but that's the backstory of me, I guess. And, and the person that I am is that I, I'm a big heart person. I love seeing things change. I believe in every human being having their own dignity and ability to rock their beautiful self. I love dancing. I love photography. I love architecture, which is strange for somebody visually impaired. I love nature. I love the sea. I see swim in Ireland all the year round, which is very cold. Mm. And I love magic. I believe I'm gutsy and I have a fierce heart and I'm a bit of a rebel. Yeah. Uh, so I might not sit in a motorbike, but I, <laughs> I think I live it out in lots of other ways. So I watched your TED Talk with my dog curled up, my big golden doodle yeah. at 100 pounds who's terrified of the thunder. And there's a thunderstorm going on yeah. while we watched it. <laughs> but I was amazed watching you move around the stage. Uh, mm. I, I never would have known, watching how you navigated the stage, that you weren't sighted. So, I mean, I, I just thought that was amazing. But then 
from that point, you went on to do something that I thought was also pretty amazing. Maybe you did it before that, but you rode across India on an elephant, right? Mm-hmm. What made you do that? Like, talk about that. Mowgli. Chris, oh, Mowgli. Mowgli. Yeah. I mean, how could you be Mowgli? <laughs> I'm not a boy. Um, and I didn't grow up in the jungle of India. But, you know, I mean, I truly, when I say I love creativity and art, I mean, it drives my heart. There's no doubt um, and I love animation. So to this day, I am a, I love the Jungle Book. And I'm also a massive lover of Jim Henson's The Muppets. Oh, you know, of course. If, what, you know, what they say is, what's your favorite soundtrack? <laughs> like, Manumana, and then Depeche Mode and all those things. That TED Talk was about nine years after I wrote The Elephant. And, you know, it was actually a very strange point in my life. You can never know who's on a stage, right? You never know. I guess it's like, what we see on Instagram, mm-hmm. but I was very scared that day. And you heard that my voice shake a lot mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, the elephant trip was my first chance of really being myself. And it happened within a year after me disclosing to Accenture that I had a vision mm-hmm. problem. Um, they sent me to a doctor and that doctor said, Hey lady, you know, what's your problem? Right. <laughs> Just go get yourself a white cane and, mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, okay. And then he asked me what I wanted to be when I was a kid. And he asked me, was I happy? And I mean, I hadn't done therapy then and I did, I have done it since, but I realized I, I really wasn't loving what I was. And I'm not joking, but it was that day as I left his office, I had this kind of radical moment. Well, I have to take some time off to help my eyes. Uh, what did I want to be when I was a child? And um, so I wanted to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book. and. I'd always loved elephants. And somehow in the way the universe does conspire when you're supposed mm-hmm. to do something, it all kind of came. And I had this idea, <gasps> well, I could become Mowgli by becoming an elephant handler because there's this great scene in Mowgli when he's with the elephants. Yeah. And so then, no joke, eight months later, I found myself in Southern India in Kerala with my forehead on the forehead of an elephant called Kanchi, who became mine at the end with a National Geographic camera behind me. And I had no idea what I was about to do. I had no idea what it was going to mean into my life. It's just my heart and my fear brought me to that place. And I rode across Southern India for four and a half months. I believe I'm the only Western woman to do a journey like that. And I trained as a mahout. And I, yeah, it started my whole disability activist career. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. My greatest life's teacher was that elephant. Yeah. You can't hide from an animal. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just even at a bit of a loss for words, which doesn't happen to me often. But just to hear what that experience must have been like for you is kind of mind boggling. You know, like the fear that you had to just get over. It was the fear of not doing it, Chris, was more than the fear of doing it. And that is the absolute truth. Ah. Do you know that in this world, it certainly then it was easier to get on an elephant in India than get on a bus in Ireland as a visually impaired person. Mm -hmm. So it's like there, there comes points in our lives because everything about all of these conversations that we have and about how we create impact in our worlds, you can only truly create, I believe, meaningful impact, healthy impact when you're being yourself. You know, yeah. you know, from yeah. that moment I got off that elephant, you know, the whole of Ireland certainly were like, oh my gosh, you know, albino Irish woman on elephant. Actually, the media were fascinated. 
And I was like, oh, what is this? <laughs> and that's really what introduced me to the scale of the enormity of the problem of disability exclusion globally and realizing for myself going, oh my gosh, I, I, without knowing it, unconsciously discriminated by not owning my own identity, by not being proud of it. Mm -hmm. It's just who, who I was. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of shame attached to it. There's been a lot of atonement and then also a lot of joy. Yeah, a lot of joy because if I learned one thing on that elephant is what would have happened in my life if I hadn't, you know? Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that might not have happened, you've gone on to found the Valuable 500. Can you tell us, first of all, what that is? And I'm also really intrigued of why you chose that name of all the names that you could have chosen versus like disability oh warriors gosh. or something like yeah, that. No. You, know, you chose <laughs> the Valuable 500. But tell us what the organization is, what it, you know, what it's all about and how you got there. Well, it was born out of a lot of frustration because when I came off the elephant, you know, I started into this work immediately. I wanted to be part of ending global exclusion and very specifically disability exclusion. And from the outset, from the very beginning, I truly believed that business has a significant role to play. It's one of the most powerful forces on our planet. Mm -hmm. And a CEO can do in moments, it can create change in moments that a politician never can because of fear of being revoted sure, in. So sure. I've always believed in that. Yeah, that's such a great insight. Right, but I, but I also believe in the power of brands. And I believe in the employees in the business who mm -hmm. are also consumers, who are also voters. I mean, but within that is just so much power. And I don't want disability to be framed in charity and worthy and pity and value and inspiration. Mm -hmm. it, don't get me wrong, but so many people are inspiring. You don't have to have a disability to be inspiring. And I think all of that kind of mix was just, I really felt the focus area I could put was to truly, truly get business to see the value. Here's the name coming. Mm -hmm. The value of people with disabilities and their families, which is 54% of our global economy. And not because you want to feel good about yourself, but because of the insight and innovation and spending power and just the huge fabric that it brings to our humanity. And we'll all be disabled at some mm -hmm. point. Sure. So that was kind of my presence. So I believed in business. I believed in the value of people with disability. I totally believe in the power of brands. I believe completely in the power of collectives, like strong collectives. Mm -hmm. But mostly I totally believe that if you have a CEO at the top of a business, if that CEO abdicates their responsibility of inclusion, mm -hmm. sorry, it's just going to be heroic actions of individuals within the business and it'll never change. It systemically will never change. It'll just be somebody's passion project. Right. And I've, I've always believed that CEOs in the shadow and the light of a leader, you know, the leaders make choices and those choices create culture. And everybody had left that aside. And for years, from the moment I got off that elephant, 2001, that is the place I've been working. Mm -hmm. And what happened is, and believe me, we had huge success. That's why I was on the TED stage. I had mm -hmm. huge failure. That's why my heart was beating. But Valuable was created for two solid reasons. One is my heart was broken because I hadn't seen accelerated change within the business community at that time. Disability was somewhere on the sidelines of the diversity and inclusion agenda. At that time, it was generally just only about one or two areas, but never disability. And despite our success, nothing had changed. And the second one was my heart was absolutely broken because my father had died. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, at the close of 2016. 
And he had known in the back of my mind, I had always wanted to go big. Like I'd always wanted to challenge the world in our uncomfortable thinking and to create a global campaign of 500 of the world's biggest companies and CEOs to radically transform, you know, how we see disability in business. And, you know, I wanted to cause an inclusion revolution. Mm -hmm. And it was a few days before he died. He pulled me in close to him. And he just said, what are you waiting for? You know, and when you see somebody that you love leave, somebody who has been a huge part of your life, I think you get, if you're lucky, a moment to Mm re-examine. And the heartbreak and the anger of grief is what drove the valuable 500 to existence, which now is the world's biggest business partnership. And I use that word partnership very, very, with very great emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. After UN Global Compact, so there's nothing like us in the world, of 500 companies and their CEOs who work together to end disability exclusion and to drive system change. And to build it in the first place, Chris, can I just tell you, I had no money. I had to remortgage my house. I mean, I rode across Colombia on a horse to find our chairman, Paul Pullman. My heart was broken in so many different ways. And I launched it from one of the most important stages in the world, which was the World Economic Forum in Davos. And people used to roll their eyes by, you know, they used to go, ah, bless her. My jaw, you know, my jaw just dropped there for a minute because (laughs) the next question I was just dying to ask you is, how did you approach your first CEO to, you know, start getting some momentum? And then the next thing you're at Davos, like, how did that happen? Well, you don't. You, no, you've got to make, if you want to make big change happen, you've got, to, you've got to be audacious. You can't do this small. And for me, if you want to get 500 of the world's biggest CEOs, and anybody can see on our website, like we've got the biggest in the business, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I have learned over the years that I had been working with business, get the best platform. Mm-hmm. I'd learned that from the stage in TED. Mm-hmm. Platforms matter. Yes. Get a really good brand behind you. Yeah. I shared a stage with Sheryl Sandberg, you know, so wow. she was the CEO of Facebook at the time. Right. Like I was on that, my TED talk was the same time as her. And I saw the power of a leader with a brand that everybody wanted to be with on a stage that everybody looked at. So that's how it was. It was that formula. It was going right. I, I need to get the main stage of Davos and I need a leader, a business leader with a brand behind them that will make others follow. I needed my first follower. Mm-hmm. And my first follower was the phenomenal Paul Pullman, wow. who was the CEO of Unilever, mm-hmm. who I had ridden across Colombia on a horse to go capture his attention because everybody kept me away from him because I'm known to generally, eventually, after a long go, to get what I need. <laughs> um, and so he, he said, okay. And he said, what do you need? And I said, you get me the main stage of Davos. And he did. That's amazing. It was amazing. I mean, honestly, and I left Davos in 2019 with 10 companies. We had Julie Sweet of Accenture. We had Satya Nadella of Microsoft. We Mm -hmm. had Richard Branson of Virgin, Virgin, led by Jeff Dodds, who's also, I have two companies now. So Jeff is one of our chairmen who gave me my first piece of money. You know, it is extraordinary. It's your first follower. And I got to tell you, it took us two years and three months to build but there is nothing like us in the world for any issue. Can you believe that? Not for climate, yeah. not for gender, not for race. And we represent 22 million employees, 64 sectors, 42 headquarter countries, 23 trillion in market cap. I mean, 22 million employees. Yeah, that's, yeah it's extraordinary. The statistics around that are just mind boggling on their own. 
I'm also really interested in the leaders themselves because, you know, I understand, and I think this was in your trend report, that business leaders at major organizations, you know, you may have something in common with them. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of things in common in terms of like audacity and bold, bold things, but that a lot of business leaders may have disabilities that they didn't talk about, but they're starting to share those mm. things. And can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Like, why is that important that a leader discloses those That's, kinds of it's things? It's everything. It's yeah. everything. I mean, firstly, 80% of disabilities acquired between the ages of 18 and 64. Mm-hmm. 80% of disability is invisible, mm-hmm. you know? So don't tell me there isn't disability in our C- in C-suite. C-suite there, yeah. Of course there is. Yeah. So what we discovered was 7% of our CEOs, 7% have a lived experience of disability, but four out of five of it do not disclose like I didn't 20 years ago. Wow. Now, what does that say about what, what's so loaded behind our understanding about disability? So everything with the valuable 500, I've been asked, how did you get them? How did you get those CEOs? Mm. And how do we keep them, which is important, because we operate with our heads and our hearts. Don't ever think, if you look at our logo, it has a V for valuable Mm -hmm. and the heart. And the V is that it's the statistics, it's the business case, it's the data around why this is essential for business and society. But the heart is about the human being in it. And when a CEO openly speaks about their disability, it transforms the way that people in their company speak about disability. And we have seen this again and again and again. So when Richard Branson now speaks about his dyslexia as a superpower, Mm -hmm. when you hear many of our CEOs talking about, I mean, we had this incredible disclosure this year in Davos when a woman who was at the top of the food chain in EY, I had no idea she was going to do it, disclosed about being deaf. Wow. People didn't know. Yeah. Wow. Right. So she is the head partner for all of EMEA and she spoke about it. So what happens then is because the big issue around disability is that our companies don't realize that there's anything between 10 to 12% of the teams are hiding a lived experience, Mm -hmm. let alone if they've got a family member. And so you're asking, why is it important the CEO speaks? Because they create the culture that allows people, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay for you to be here and have those things you need. And you asked me at the beginning, why did I choose the name Valuable 500? Because I truly believe in the value of every human experience. This isn't disabled people are not more valuable than anybody else, but we're also not less than or damaged. We're not a higher risk to you than anything else. We are valuable, all of us are. And those stories are valuable. And the 500 companies that we asked to is, I want you to normalize disability in your business as customers and suppliers and talent and members of community let's let's stop this right let's stop this this craziness because it's crazy that people don't even want to use the word so let's talk more about the employees because i know you've also done research on this and you know this idea that people who have disabilities feel less happy at work or they feel like work yeah. negatively impacts yes. their mental and their physical state not every disability is one that you can hide as easily. No. You know, some of the, some, you know, it's very visible. Can you talk a little bit about the impact on employees 
in terms of being in situations where either they feel compelled to hide or they feel like their work is problematic in terms of, you know, them just being healthy and who they are. Yeah, well, I see, I can speak to this very personally. To disclose is a very personal choice. Sure. But I want to talk about the damage when you don't disclose. Mm -hmm. Harvard did a huge piece of research about the cost of what they call covering. And this is not just about disability. It could be about your sexual preference. It could be about living with cancer. We don't know, right? Sure. But the cost of productivity, which is a horrible way to talk about it, is about 30%. Mm-hmm. But when you're covering a significant experience of yours, and I know this because, and I see it and I hear it all the time, you're not giving your very best. You can't be the best leader. You can't be the best partner. You can't be the best friend. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not being yourself, mm-hmm. if you're putting energy into trying to be something else just so you can fit in, and I don't want to fit in, I want to belong uniquely mm-hmm. to myself as I want for everybody. And then on the other side, and this is what happened when we did the trend report and research is to say, it's extraordinary the amount of people with disabilities who do not feel supported or comfortable in their work environment. And a lot of that is because they are not disclosing. Right. Because they're frightened of getting caught. What will it mean if I tell you? But look how well they must be doing in the jobs anyway, mm-hmm. right? Without even asking. And I don't believe on the whole that people, if you asked for help in a business, are going to say no if you're right. already succeeding. Right. Don't you think? I mean, look at what people do against all the odds. So to create an environment where you might be able to succeed is... It's just a no-brainer. And when I think about myself, isn't it extraordinary that when I finally came out of the closet, look what happened to my life. Look at all the the potential that I could have potential, you know, wasted. Yeah. But the most important thing is, you know, it's maybe taken me this long, but I'm 52 years old and I think I'm okay. It's taken me a long time. Right. It didn't just come out of the closet. It wasn't just going on an elephant. It wasn't just building Valuable 500. It's finding a way to know that I might be okay just as I am. Yeah. Enough and valuable as I am. Yeah. And cultures that we live in and the people that we're around really affect that. So I want to ask for your thoughts about inclusive design. We spend a lot of time thinking about that, how the physical environment can communicate things to people. I mean, certainly in terms of accessibility, but just what the physical space says about the culture and the organization. And I'm interested in, you know, what do you think about that? And are there any organizations that you've seen where you go, they are doing that really well? They're really thinking about that in a smart way. Well, I think we're all really at the very beginning of this journey. I mean, maybe not just the beginning, because in universal design or inclusive design or design for all has been around a long time, as we know. And once again, it's kind of obvious, don't you think, Chris? Mm -hmm. Like there's 8 billion of us on the planet, like one design way is not going to solve it for everybody. (laughs) I mean, it's so, it's so obviously. And do I love it? Do I love when this question is asked? Yes, because, and how do we make it happen? It's that when Mm -hmm. any company is designing a product, a a service, an initiative, make sure you have the diversity of thinking experience right in at the outset so that we design in inclusion, we design in, in belonging. And we're seeing that. Now we're seeing great advances in, I believe, in digital universal design, in digital accessibility, because actually since COVID particularly, we've all been living through our screens, right? So mm-hmm. we're seeing the importance of that. And it's not just about disability, it's if, you know about language, about many things. So it's important 
to accept that governments have put laws in place to say we need to have physical buildings to a standard. Sure. But like, we're not here for compliance, are we? Compliance right. is a dirty word, right? We should be here for something <laughs> more. And particularly when we're talking about business, why would you keep business out of your places of work or out of your places of profit? I don't understand it. Um, there's a few that I love. I mean, come on, we know the big tech ones are doing, I mean, are investing so much in it. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic. But I remember saying, you know, with Netflix, honestly, yeah. it was one of those first kind of woohoo moments, you know, that captioning was there right across, right? It right. wasn't you know, that was, they had to do it and they have. So that's amazing to see. And then starting to see the content on Netflix, you start looking, this disability programming, right? So mm -hmm. that's an accessible mindset stuff. I Airbnb, I'm currently staying in the South of France in an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And we do not go and look at any Airbnb unless we look at all the accessibility features. We're just making a point, myself and my husband and our two dogs. Right. And it just gives me, I mean, it's delightful. You know, I came in, it's a farmhouse. It's in the middle of nowhere. Chris, I'm in the middle of a field. <laughs> and they have, truly, they have a, a ramp going up into the farmyard. They have a ramp going into their yard so that everybody will be able to share the same experience as a family. Mm -hmm. I love, you know, the... Have you heard of the sunflower lanyard? So that if you go no. into a retail... Yeah, so... It happens in airports and it can happen in supermarkets. You can put a lanyard on that has a sunflower. Yeah. And what that indicates to the teams is that you're somebody with an invisible disability ah. and you'd like help. So the team are trained to come up to you and say, what do you need? Oh. Now, for somebody like me, amazing. Because I can't see toothpaste from, I don't know, uh, garden blades, yeah, weeds. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's great. So there's some of the things in it. And what it takes is, I believe it takes, once again, the leadership of the of the company and the business say, team, go do it. Right. And be thoughtful and know it's never going to end. And it's constantly going to take us to be curious. And it's constantly going to take us to ask questions. And we're going to get it wrong a thousand times. Mm -hmm. But every time we get it wrong, we'll get one step we'll get closer to right. Yeah. yeah. So if you gave some key recommendations to leaders, if we have leaders listening right now and you were to say to them, do these three things or whatever, choose your number, that you think are really important to focus on being a more inclusive workplace, what would those things be? Number one, tell your story, be vulnerable. Uh -huh. Role model by example. You know, again, leaders make choices, choices create the culture. Mm. So tell your story, whatever your story is to where you were vulnerable, what your experience was, tell your story. Number two is to be accountable. And that is to admit you don't know mm -hmm. and then go seek help. That's the most important part. So if there's an area that you don't know about around inclusion, go ask mm -hmm. and be very clear that you don't know because you don't have to know. It's okay. Yeah. But be responsible right? For putting in targets mm -hmm. and measurable outcomes, because impact is not going to happen unless you have the courage to say, okay, I don't know. So let's, where are we today? Take a kind of right. a quick check of where you are and then go out and set targets, make them small at the beginning, but start at least start. The third thing in a business is talk to your people, mm -hmm. talk to your people because they're the ones who know the experience. And this is why we are very supportive of employee resource groups around 
lots of different issues. It can be around disability. It could be a people who love, I don't know, stamp collecting. But, you know, encourage that because, sure. and then go out and ask, how do you want this company to turn up and be inclusive? How do mm -hmm. you, what is, what do you want to demonstrate? So for me, it's again, it's a combination of stats, like putting report. I don't care how bad your reporting is. Have the courage to report. Set goals in. There's the hard line, the targets. Go seek the information. But then the stories. Mm -hmm. Be a human being. Yeah. For at least now, human beings run business. I'm not sure for how long with AI, but for <laughs> now, we're, for, we're designed for and by to serve humans. And I am a big supporter of humans and human-generated content yes. materials. And, yes. you know, so I put in my vote for that one. Okay, Caroline, I have to ask you one last question that we've been asking all of our guests this season. And I find it kind of difficult to ask because just talking to you, I feel like you've already answered it. But if you had to pick one person, one group, one event, one moment, one something that you think has just really made an impact on people or the planet, then what would it be? I know that's hard. That's like asking you have to choose your favorite. Yeah, movie and I'm of very bad time. at favorites. Favorite? <laughs> I'm so bad at favorites because I, 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 there's so many places. But I will say to you, there was a podcast I listened to when we were driving two days ago, and I cannot stop thinking about this podcast. Mm. And it's called The Diary of a CEO, and it's done by Stephen Bartlett. It's not mm -hmm. him, but it was the guest. And I just found myself profoundly impacted by her. And she was the CMO of Apple mm. and Uber. And her name is Bonozo St. John. And the reason that I felt it was so impactful, which will answer your question, the people who I truly believe bring about change are those of our world who are able to be accountable and responsible for their faults and their failures, to deal with adversity in a humble way, and who admit that they have a lot to know. Mm -hmm. And I found her... I, there was something about her humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, she told a story about her, how her mum always told her that she was worth something. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm not biologically a mum myself. I'm a stepmom mm -hmm. and I'm going to be a step granny in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. But I think people who give permission for themselves to see their own worth mm -hmm. and their own value through their own journey give other people permission. Mm -hmm. Every one of us has the ability to create impact. You don't have to be Richard Branson. You don't have to do a valuable 500. You don't have to run a massive company or not-for-profit. Right. It's actually, we are here to live our life, to give, to have a sense of self-love, compassion, acceptance, and to reach our potential. And in doing that, we deliver that permission to everyone around us because inclusion is all for everyone or not at all. And the first person you've got to include in that and you've got to love is yourself. Mm. So anybody who's got that courage... Yeah, I'm for them. Yeah. You know, Caroline, you just brought to mind a memory for me when I was a teenager and I went outside to change a flat tire on my car, which my mother was a little surprised that I knew how to do that, but I went out and <laughs> changed the tire. When I came back into the house, I overheard her on the telephone talking to somebody, and she said, that kid could do anything. 
I don't know who she was talking to. I still don't know, but that's what my mom thought about me. And I thought, wow. I, that makes I'm, me cry for good. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I believe you, mom. Maybe I can. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Now I'm going to cry. I've never cried on a podcast but, before. But you but know, it is anyway. so important <laughs> because it's, see, but this is, you ask where the impact comes from. It's stories. These places, we're all the different, so therefore we're the same. Mm -hmm. And we spend so much time fighting over these identities. And yet, it's when somebody turns around to you and says, I believe in you. Mm -hmm. There's your mic drop, right? That's the impact. There you go. Hey, on that note, Caroline Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. Ready to explore how your workplace can help people feel seen, heard, and valued so they can thrive at work and in the world? Check out our latest issue of Work Better Magazine to get new ideas to create more inclusive workplaces. Order your free copy at steelcase.com slash WB Magazine. Thank you for being here with us on Work Better today. Rebecca, can you tell everyone who we're gonna to talk to next week? Next week, we're talking to Jeremy Meyerson, He's director at WorkTech Academy, which brings together the best and brightest minds in the world of work. Mm -hmm. And he co-wrote a book called Unworking, The Reinvention of the Modern Office. Which I thought was a really interesting title uh, to think about work through the lens of unworking. Right. He yeah. certainly doesn't mean that we should stop working, but he does want us to rethink our assumptions about work and the places where work happens. For example, instead of thinking about how to design workplaces for the process of work or how mm -hmm. work happens, he really wants to think about designing them to create experiences. He actually says that offices maybe should start to be inspired by Walt Disney. Well, you know, Walt Disney certainly did think about the experience that people had when, you know, they would come to the parks. And so, you know, likewise, I think Jeremy does a great job of you know, crystallizing this idea of thinking about the experience that we need to create for people that needs to be fundamentally different mm -hmm. than it was in the past. So, you know, it was really a great conversation. And if you enjoyed this conversation today, uh, please share the podcast with a friend or colleague and visit us at steelcase.com research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research insights and design ideas all delivered to your inbox. So we hope you'll join us for this conversation coming up with Jeremy. Thanks again for being here today and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better Podcast possible. Creative Art Direction is by Aaron Ellison. Editing and Sound Mixing by Soundpost Studios. Technical Support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez and digital publishing by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.